Hi, and welcome to FEMA's Finance Podcast. I'm your host, Asiel, and this podcast aims to support, educate, and empower women to achieve career success and financial freedom. In each episode, FEMA's Finance talks with successful women leaders, founders, and investors to inspire you in your journey to financial freedom. Check out the show notes, links, and resources on our page, Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Femis Finance Podcast Show. I'm your host, Asira Altaeva, and today I'm very excited to talk with Alana Karen, who is a director of search platforms at Google and an author of the best-selling book called The Adventures of Women in Tech, How We Got Here and Why We Stay. Firstly, Alana, thank you so much for making the time, and I'm very pleased to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Alana, I actually have a range of questions to ask from you, but first, to set the scene here... Google and Google search platforms are probably the names that many people, many of our listeners might already know. So instead, our main goal is really getting to know you both in personal and professional way. So could you tell us about your current role at Google and what are your day-to-day responsibilities? Yeah, absolutely. So I am currently within a team called Search Platforms, as you mentioned. That is infrastructure. When you come to search and you put a search term into that search box, what makes results appear? What makes answers appear? And how do they look? And what shows up? All of that is search infrastructure. And I lead up program management, which is essentially operations. It's how do we help engineers get things done, track their goals, make sure that they're executing and continuing to improve. Awesome. I'm very happy to to hear that. We'll definitely come back to your current role at Google, but I definitely first want to touch on the topic of your career journey and career trajectory. So based on your LinkedIn profile, you worked in four different organizations throughout your career as a Googler, uh, from Google Search to Google Ads, Fiber to Google Grants and beyond. So my first question is, what was the most exciting about each of these organizations and what made you switch? Sure. I was in Google ads to begin with. And that was really, I mean, this was 20 years ago. It was right when ads was really taking off and we were figuring out every day what to do with new types of ads we were getting, how to serve lots of new customers who were coming in and how to scale. I ended up with a specialty around policy, what ads we accept and what we wouldn't accept. And that just ended up being really interesting. It was early on the internet and what businesses were on the internet were rapidly developing and the laws were getting figured out at the same time for what would be allowed on the internet and what could be sold and what could be advertised. And it ended up just being a really interesting growth period for me, not just in terms of learning that space, but also becoming a manager and then a leader of managers and and ultimately becoming a director. And so it was a lot of personal growth in terms of learning how you manage other people and how you develop a team and how you develop strategy for a team. 
And that's a piece of my job that I'm interested in to this day. Around the 10-year mark, I decided to make a bigger change and I moved to Google Fiber. And what was exciting about that was this was, again, like a totally new product for Google anyway, ultra fast internet and how are we going to build a business around it? And I was going to be running customer service and the installs in the home. And really interesting for me to expand what I'd learned in my first 10 years at Google into that space. But also think about an industry that had historically had poor customer service and think about how to really evolve that and change that and and make a way for us to have great customer service. Then after that journey through fiber, where I'd worked on essentially kind of two startup products for Google as they scaled and matured, but grew them from scratch, it was really interesting for me to join search right when it was about 20 years old, figure out, okay, when you joined a big product, but it still needs to scale and it still needs to evolve, how do you do that? Um, And ultimately I ended up building a team from a fairly small team to a bigger team. Um, That first year I grew at 3X, but it was really an interesting challenge for me to join a more mature product and see, well, what, what do you learn from this experience and how do you make changes and how do you change a culture when the team is bigger? Um, and how do you join an end, like a, a pure end team and make differences? That sounds great. And I'm very interested to know about the risks that you took in your career. Um, there is actually a quote saying um, success comes from taking risks. And I'm very interested to know more about the risks that you took in your career And how have you felt that the choices that you've made were impactful and how have they defined you to become the person that you're today? Hmm, Interesting. You know, some people would say I I hadn't, I haven't been very risky at all because I'm in my 21st year at Google. And some people would consider that sort of playing it safe that I stayed at a company so long and I didn't leave. And I think that there's a version of the truth in there, but I think that would also be forgetting that when I joined Google, it was a startup. And at various points, it wasn't clear that it was going to be the success that it is. And there have been all kinds of challenges along the way. And also that I made these changes in my role, big changes. I didn't stay on the same trajectory. I didn't stay in the same type of role. I made big product changes along the way. And that felt very not traditional, in fact, that I ended up being kind of a jack of all trades, not really a specialist in any one particular thing. And I had to define myself and prove that definition to other people versus being able to say, oh, I'm always in sales or I'm always in product. I I had to blur the lines and show people that I could play in different spaces. So those ha- things have felt really risky. I, I think along the way, I also had three children. And each time as you decide to make space in your life for 
things that don't feel like they will be allow you to 100% focus on work, it can always feel risky, right? You're you're adding more to that balance. That can't be understated how it's felt at various times, like a risk, a totally worthwhile risk, um, but a risk in terms of how am I going to do it all? And how am I going to show up both for my family, but also my job? Because you mentioned it earlier that writing my book, at the time, I was just so passionate to do it. But it also meant that I was taking time to do this other thing and throwing that into what I had to balance and taking risks just in terms of how I went about doing it and whether it would be popular, whether people would read it, whether people would like my writing. I I think all of that has ended up coming together to along the way, keep things really interesting, but also keep me on my toes. Wow, that's that's really inspiring. And it's also refreshing to hear. I can understand that you're very proud of the team that you have and the magic that they make it happen in the world. So can you please tell us more about your team? My current team is about 100 people. And I've got different people reporting up through me with different responsibilities, but all within this general place of how do we support search infrastructure engineers and how do we help make them successful? And because of that, I've ended up hiring people from diverse backgrounds, some technical, some less technical, some more focused on communication, some more focused on leadership, some more focused on how you bring teams together or how you organize teams together or how you build tools or how you lead vendor management. And so everybody essentially sort of plays a role in this bigger organism, I guess I would say. And I sort of think about it like you're building a big garden and how are you pulling together the right pieces and planting the right seeds to ultimately make this healthy garden. And so the team has over time, we've been together five years now growing along the way. We have a really strong management culture. We've really tried to build a place where managers would pay a lot of attention to the growth of their employees and supporting their employees. Um, but at the same time, getting work done and doing the most critical work for the business. Um, and over time, I think we've gotten better and better at figuring out how to support current team members and think about diversity and build a culture around that within the team as well. Um, but it's something that we have to really think about day in, day out and continue to support. How does Google approach promoting diversity and inclusion in the search platform team? And specifically, how do you approach it personally? Diversity is important and it adds to our products that it is important for our products that we should reflect the diversity of our users in the diversity of our employee base. And not just diversity where you think about racial diversity, but also other aspects like where are people from and what perspectives and cultures are they bringing? Um, what perspectives might they bring from their backgrounds? Or what do we have to think about for accessibility and other types of diversity that we may not? And a lot of that we get exposed through 
two through regular communications and training. And so that's been a big piece growing over the years. When I first started at Google, it wasn't necessarily a big thought. Like you just kind of thought if you were hiring the smartest people, you were doing a great job. And over time, we started to learn more about, oh, wait, 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 are you are you unintentionally overlooking certain types of diversity in your hiring? Are you unintentionally by only hiring from certain schools, missing out on different types of talent? And so that's really evolved over time. And, and the training and communications have really, I think, helped level set across the company about how we do that and how we do it well. But then it really comes down to you and your team absorbing those things and making sure that in your practices and your day-to-day processes that you are thinking about them and that in that meeting when maybe someone interrupts another person you say hey let's make space for that person to talk or if you keep seeing the same people get salary raises or promotions that you're stepping up and thinking about what's causing that so that's a lot about what i feel like i'm really watching out for within my organization in our hiring processes, in our management processes, in our talent processes, how are we instilling these values throughout all of them so that you really do build an environment where people feel like if they bring their best work, they will get recognized for it and they will get recognized equitably for it and it'll be a great place to work for them. On your personal website, I've seen so many great initiatives and programs that you've been part of in order to empower women to work and excel in the technology industry. Can you please tell us about some of the successful programs that you've implemented? A lot of what I've been thinking about is, as I become a leader, how do I build out my team in a way that really fosters talent of all types, especially from historically marginalized groups and women in tech are still a minority group. Um, And while sometimes we're graduating at very high rates from institutions, if you look at the uh, workforce, especially in terms of technical talent, in the US, for example, you'll see that we're hovering about maybe like 20% of women within Um, tech roles. And when you look at larger tech companies, often what balances out their male versus female ratios is that there's so much, so many non-technical roles, whether it's sales, legal, um, HR, that are augmenting the female numbers. And I think that that's awesome, honestly, bring them all to tech. And I want all types in tech. But I do think we are certainly missing out if we don't continue to foster women in technical and product roles, especially in terms of just the diversity the products will create and whether those products truly represent the full spectrum of the world. An example I'll always use is how smartwatches launched and they were humongous because no one had tested them on small wrists. They just hadn't tested them on feminine or smaller sized wrists. And so we miss out on a lot of the world when we don't have some kind of processes for this. So a lot of what I've looked out for in my team 
has had to do a lot about how are we supporting women? How are we fostering them? Like, are we um, having conversations with them about their careers? Are we giving them equal opportunities? Um, are they getting a chance to be mentors and leaders as much as we are offering them mentorship and training? Because often women can be over mentored and not necessarily sponsored for leadership roles. More broadly, you know that I've written this book and I've been doing a ton of promotion for that book. And so I have been supporting a lot of the programs either from nonprofits or nonprofits, conferences, or other companies as they try to build out that same environment at their companies. Um, and recently in the last year launched a workbook follow-up to the first book so that women could have these exercises that help them build tools and skills at any time throughout their career and not just if their company sponsors them or helps train them or mentors them or whatnot. So really trying to democratize the access to this information as much as possible. But instead of just making it a one-off program that you have to belong to, writing a book that's up on Amazon for anybody to find. Um, so that's a lot of what I've been doing and how I've been thinking about it. Yes, that's actually a very interesting point. I just finished reading a book called Unlocking the Clubhouse, Women in Computing, which talks about the lack of female representation in both product design and engineering teams worldwide and touches upon some of the ideas that you just shared with us. And it actually tells that the first automotive airbags and artificial hard valves and many, many other technologies were designed primarily for male bodies, male voices, which resulted in the deaths of many women and children. And it stresses the importance of having more women involved in design teams that are shaping the world around us. Now, let's talk about the future of search platforms. Uh, these days, I guess you have heard about GPT-3 and generative AI, uh, and it has garnered a lot of attention for its impressive capabilities in natural language processing. I would like to ask, how does Google position itself to stay ahead of the curve and have a competitive advantage over other technologies? Oh my goodness, like what a timely question. I, mean, I will say I'm not an official Google spokesperson, so... Um... I think that you're only going to get my point of view on this, but I will say that we've recently been talking about it. Um, and so there's information about how we're thinking about it just posted publicly right now. I, I think ultimately what I've taken away from all of that is that this, while there is some like really interesting news coming out recently and a lot of like interesting developments in the space, it's still really new. And if you're using some of this technology, you'll still see the places where we're still training it to give really good answers or the answers that you would expect or answers that seem trustworthy or answers that um, maybe don't just repeat all the biases that have been pulled from the internet. Um, and so you only get answers from a, a particular point of view and maybe not a more neutral point of view. 
I'm really excited and you can feel the excitement in the technical world about these developments, but you can also feel a lot of hesitation and caution because there's still so much more to do to develop products that would really, I think, both meaningfully help users, but also not cause harm. And and that's a lot of the thinking happening right now. And a lot of what you'll see being talked about. Um, and I, I think it's just going to be a really invested in and interesting area over the next couple of years, but very much one in development and in motion. Amazing. What do you think about the safety of using that particular technology? Most of these products are getting launched as alphas or betas. And so that means they are really early in development and they are not for the average user. They are for first adopters who really want to test and and bang on these products and give feedback and tell it when it's wrong and all of that type of stuff. So while I think they're super interesting and you can make them do some really funny things, I wouldn't say yet that they are at a mature place and I would caution users accordingly. Now let's focus on the topic of finance and investment. I would like to ask you, what is your approach to personal finance and investment uh, where do you invest your money, your time, and what factors do you consider when making investment decisions? It's an interesting question for me because I always like to start off with how I grew up because I think it's important context. I, I grew up without a lot of money and I really, I don't like to call myself poor because I never went hungry but there were plenty of times where we couldn't buy everything in the grocery store and we had to put things back. And we really were living month to month. And because of that, I will say that a lot of my initial years, my working years were really quite focused on just reaching a place of stability, saving up, and not spending money. Like what I really liked doing was just watching the bank account grow. I was very sort of Scrooge McDuck, if you've ever seen that cartoon character in his room of gold coins swimming through them. Um, and so for me, like as I started to get my first job, I like saving up and, and it was really about that. And I wasn't really thinking about investing at all. Investing to me, sounded like something that like rich fancy people did when they had extra money like and like who had extra money like to me it was just always getting to some place of stability and so over the years i've had to teach myself what what would make you comfortable buying your first house you know what what price target what level of mortgage are you willing to have and really partner with my now husband on that closely so that like we could both be comfortable. Um, even if he was willing to take a bigger risk, where was I? And all of those kind of things were really important in our conversations with each other so that we would be more eye to eye. And, you know, how much of my savings was, was, was I willing to put in investments 
verse keep in cash. So I would always have some cash. So to me, I think it's been a little bit more about taking little risks here or there, having a sort of moderate approach and, but like not being completely devoid of investment and risk and being really select. Like, um, a couple years ago, I decided that I would angel invest in just a couple things, right? And and this really low dollar amount, but just test it out and, and do that for the first time and just learn from that. And, and generally speaking, I've like essentially lost money on that. You know, very few startups survive or are actually successful, but being part of those folks process as they developed companies taught me something, taught me a lot about how to invest and where to invest and what questions to ask, et cetera, and how to support founders. And I think that that was valuable too, but you have to figure out, I think, where your comfort is and what your portfolio can be based on where you are not just in sort of your comfort level, but also where are you in your life, right? Like as I get older, I'm going to want to have a certain amount for retirement. And how am I on track for that? How how am I doing setting aside money for my kids' universities? All of those kind of things are going to come into play and just really thinking through them and being intentional as much as you can. And I think being really understanding with yourself where you can't, where you have a hard year and really all you're going to do that year is cover your expenses and, you know, try to save money, right? Like just do your best. And I was, went through a lot of those years and now I can start to think more about portfolio, but in keeping with my background. As a parent of three amazing children, what strategies do you use to teach your children about the importance of financial literacy And what advice would you give to other parents who are looking to instill good financial habits in their children? And yeah, how can they make learning about money fun and engaging for kids of all ages? Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like we stumbled upon something that's worked for us. We didn't start particularly early necessarily, um, although the kids early on saw that we would not say yes to everything. Um, And this was important to me. I mean, growing up, I obviously didn't have a lot of money. So I got told no a lot when I asked for things. And while I didn't want to be quite so restrictive with my children, I also had really learned the value of money through asking for a lot of things, not necessarily getting all of them, having to pick and choose, having to really prioritize, wait to get things that I asked for, maybe for my birthday or for the holidays. And so that process I thought was important versus always saying yes and essentially sort of devaluing things. Like you you have to apply some, even if you have the money, you have to apply some level of restriction. And so, you know, the kids, when they were little, just saw that like, yeah, you can ask and every once in a while we'll say yes, or 
every once in a while will tell you, you can go find something for $2 or less and we'll buy you a little treat or, you know, we're in Target, um, which is one of our like big stores and that you can just buy various things in, in the U S and, and you can go find a treat for yourself under $5. And so giving them a sense of those things. And then as they've gotten older, we've started to pay them weekly allowance for chores. And so they have to do those chores. They get paid through an app called Greenlight and they can save through that app. So in the app, they can choose whether they want to you know, keep that money in spending, keep that money in savings. If they put it in savings, then they get interest paid. If they, they can also choose to donate it. So there's different things you can do and you could use it much more fancily than we do where, you know, they could get even more money for doing other tasks. Um, you know, so there's, there's lots of things you can do within that app. But it also, as the kids have come, gotten older, they can get a debit card. And now my teenagers can pay with that debit card. And so they're seeing how quickly they can spend that money if they, you know, go out to eat with their friends and what they would have to do to save up if they wanted to save up for something. So I think that's been the main and pretty successful way that we've been able to navigate that with the kids and you know we'll we'll just continue to see as they get older what works um but they already see that I can tell they already understand saving up and they understand what happens if they spend their money too quickly and it's gone so I think that's some of what I wanted them to experience before they were out in the world and had no sense of it such an amazing point. Thank you so much for sharing it and really gave me some uh, ideas on how to improve our projects. Thank you so much. Um, and I would like to ask, what is your last advice to young women listening to our podcast today? My last advice, that that's, seems like a really important question. I mean, I think that often I'm asked, what advice do I wish I'd gotten when I was younger? And in my book and covered in the workbook in detail, what I always say is that I wish I'd learned learned earlier to ask, to ask questions, to ask for help, to ask for what I wanted and what I needed. And I think it's interesting that just often the way women are raised traditionally is to help other people. And as a side effect of that, I think we often learn to be sort of quiet and just take care of others. And ultimately, as we get further into our careers or lives, we struggle because we don't know all the answers, but we haven't really built a tool chest for asking others for help and finding support. And so I really do try when I'm exposed to women early in their careers to try to instill this value that asking for help is not a weakness. Asking for help can often be 
your ticket to a better answer, to a better role, a better job, a better way of doing something. Um, or it can even just alert people that we need help and that that's not the worst thing, that that maybe is would be really good for ourselves and our health and for the bigger picture. And so I think that that's the last advice I would give. Don't don't be afraid to ask for help. Learn how to ask for help. It is a great skill and it will get you further than doing it alone. Amazing. I think it's a brilliant ending to our conversation. Alana, thank you so much for your time and sharing all the valuable advice. You've walked us through your amazing career journey, your thoughts on the future of search platforms, the way you seamlessly integrate diversity, equity, and inclusion in your role, your financial habits. And it's just so amazing to hear such advice from you. Lastly, thank you so much for empowering young women to pursue a career in the tech industry. And thank you for empowering Femis Finance Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm such a fan of what you all are doing. And I just hope you can continue to do it. The information presented on the podcast or available on our website is for entertainment use only and is not intended for financial or investment advice. Make sure to consult with your own financial professional when making decisions regarding your financial or investment options. That's all for this episode of Femis Finance Podcast. We hope you learned something new and found the discussion helpful in your journey to financial freedom and career success. Please don't forget to follow us on your favorite social media platforms and leave us a review on your podcast player. Until next time, please keep empowering yourself and your finances. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you in the next episode. Have a great day.